0: Hello, I'm Nicole Aberdee and I write about books for Good Weekend. Welcome to the Books, Books, Books podcast in which I interview the best writers from Australia and overseas about their latest books. Thank you for joining me. Today I'd like to welcome Malcolm Turnbull. He's going to talk to me about his new book, A Bigger Picture, which has certainly got everybody talking. Malcolm, welcome. Welcome. Uh, You often say about somebody they need little introduction, but it's very rarely as accurate as it is here. Malcolm Turnbull has been a journalist, a barrister, a solicitor, a businessman, an investment banker, an advocate for a republic and a politician. He was our Prime Minister from 2015 to 2018, and he's been married to his wife, Lucy, for 40 years. He proposed on their second date, and together they have two children and four grandchildren. Malcolm, thank you so much for joining me today. Great
1: to be with you, Nicole.
0: Malcolm, I'd like to start at the beginning. Could you tell us a little bit about your parents? I know that Bruce was handsome and athletic. Coral was beautiful and bookish. What were they like as parents?
1: Well, they were great parents. Uh, My my mother uh, was a magnificent, charismatic, eloquent person, very theatrical, came from a theatrical family. Both of her parents were actors. Uh, she, um, she, you know, she was a writer. And she was a wonderful mother, actually. She was very, uh, you know, just my early memories of her are just wonderful. Uh, so she was a wonderful mother until she left, and she, and she was absent.
0: How, uh, how old were you when she left, Malcolm? Well, she, I was about
1: nine. Um it's a, it's kind of hard to put a date on it because she sort of left in bits in stages. You know, she she basically she fell in love. You know what, my parents had an unhappy marriage. Um they weren't really well suited, and I've described that in the book. Um, no fault of either of them. They, you know, I think the only reason they got married, I think, was because, I assume was because of me. I was um coral with was, you know, single. She she got married to a man much older than herself when she was very young, he died. Um, She met my father, you know, nature took its course and and there I was on the 24th of
0: October, 1954. And you've you've emphasised that one of the differences between them was that she was very intellectual and very bookish and that your father really wasn't.
1: Yeah, well, Dad was, you know, Dad was, um, uh, you know, left school at the intermediate, you know, he was 15 and uh, was an apprentice electrician. He was a salesman. He's a highly intelligent man, very, very intelligent guy. Had a lot of EQ as well as IQ, but he'd never studied and he wasn't a a great reader. Uh, He was a wonderful storyteller and raconteur, um, but a very different person to Coral. She passed
0: on to you a love of reading, didn't she? She read to you a lot when you were small. yeah, yeah. Well, I've got a
1: book somewhere... Uh, i think it's rosemary suckers book, eagle of the night actually um that she um which uh, she inscribed you know to you know to my to my little bookworm or my darling bookworm or something like that
0: and malcolm you said that uh, she left when you were about 9 you were saying yeah, that it was yeah. well, in, in
1: fits saying, and stuff, yeah, so. yeah she sort of she basically by the time i was 10 she was gone mm. uh, but Uh, She sort of started to leave in, in, you know, 64, end of 63, 64, and she basically, she fell in love with a guy called John Salmon, who was a New Zealander, who was a historian of French uh, Renaissance history.
0: Malcolm, what was the impact on you and your father of her leaving? I know that you'd already started boarding school at St Ives, uh, Sydney Grammar, St Ives Prep when you were eight, what was the impact on your life and your father's growing up? Or were well, your immediate impact and then yeah, I guess well, the well, longer the, term immediate,
1: impact. Immediate impact was we we you know had to move out of our flat because it was sold and Coral took the, the proceeds or you know, most of them I guess uh, she took most of the furniture. Um,
0: and that was because she owned it, is that right? Yeah, yeah,
1: she owned it. We'll see, She'd in those days she was much more financially you know, successful than my father. I mean, she wasn't, you know, she wasn't a hugely financially successful, but he was literally a struggling salesman. And she was a, you know, she was writing lots of radio serials and being, you know, reasonably well paid for that, I guess. Uh so certainly the you know the cash flow in the family was coming from her. Um she um yeah, so so I mean Bruce Bruce um you know I say in the book that her absence, you know, crept up on me like a sort of a slow chill uh about my heart. And it was it was that's really I only it took me a while to realize that she had left, you know, because she was going away to you know, he Bruce was always um just very very subtly sort of persuading, brainwashing me almost, into believing that she hadn't left or she hadn't left for long and she was coming back.
0: Why do you think he did that, Malcolm?
1: Well, because he wanted me, he did not want me to think that my mother had deserted me. Uh, You know, he knew how close we were and he knew that if I thought my mother didn't love me, that would be devastating for me. And so, you know, he, uh, you know, one of the stories I recount in the book was when I finally went over and visited her in New Zealand. And I would have been 10, you know, getting somewhere, maybe 10, maybe 11, close to 11, was around that time, sort six of 60, 65, I think, 1965 I think it was. Um, I went, Bruce had written to her and I have all the letters because so, they both died and I, they kept quite a few of their, correspondence, bit of their correspondence. And he wrote to her and the de- and he said to her now, you know, Malcolm's going to come over but, you know, really don't want him to think that you're living with John Salmon, you know, because I haven't told him about that. And so the deal was that John would, you know, she agreed John would move out for a couple of weeks and, you know, stay at, you know, somewhere else. Uh, and instead, I got off the plane at the airport and the first thing she said was, darling, Professor Salmon and I are getting married.
0: How and did that make you feel, I, Malcolm?
1: I, I, I just, it was, I just, I was just dumbstruck, you know. I mean, she, she but, you know, Coral did not have a lot of EQ, you know, and uh, frankly, um she was a you know a good writer, very good writer. But she she lived in a she lived in a sort. She was a fabulous fabulist, you know. And and which is why many things you know many things. But she um, she told me I, I can never be sure whether they're true, you know, because she sort of she just she was a writer of fiction, and um, that's <laughs> that's just the way she was, right? Anyway, so so. So we, so dad and I moved into a smaller flat um, in double Bay, actually. And, um, and we, you know, he got some, you know, he managed to get some furniture. And I mean, he, look, he did not, he, he was not bright, but he, he certainly didn't have, he wasn't uh, flush with cash. I mean, he struggled at times to send me to, you know, pay the fees to send me to school. But he was a, a hotel broker, so which is essentially like a real estate agent for hotels. And so Bruce was often travelling around the countryside, and you know, it just it just wasn't feasible for me to be at home all the time.
0: And then you came back when you were sixteen, when your dad yeah, yeah, well, uh, I,
1: remarried. Yeah, dad remarried. Uh, he got remarried to a woman called Judy Womersley, who, um, and that would have been in about 1970, I guess, and I came home from boarding school at the end of the second term in 1970 and lived with Bruce and Judy in um, a flat in Longworth Avenue, literally across the road from where I live now, uh, and uh, until, you know, until I went to university, and then, I, you know, when I was at university, I lived in, um, most of the time, I was living in, you know, various flats and houses with other students, you know.
0: Malcolm, I just want to ask you one thing about your school life. I know that you went to school at Sydney Grammar. You had a very keen interest in history and you're a very enthusiastic debater. And one of the friends, the lifelong friends, that you made through debating was David Gonski. Could you tell us a little bit about what you two were like as schoolboys? Oh, I don't, I, yeah,
1: that's a good question. Well, I don't know. David David is has never changed. David has always been, David has sort of, Grown into his age. He was always very serious and grown up. And um and he had a, a sort of a gravity about him that was always, you know, middle-aged. And I don't use that in a critical way at all, but you know, that was just always he, he I mean, I'll give you an example. So Lucy and I had just got back from England in 1980. Uh, and I'd got a job at Dawson Walton, which was Law firm, and now called Blake's Blake, I Blake Pan Blake Dawson Morgan, maybe something else now. Anyway, I and we we Lucy and I had Lucy was finishing her last year of law school, and we we're at Martin Place Railway Station, and we met David. And David is literally one year older than me. Right? And so David, um, so I said, oh, you know, hi David, this is Lucy, you know, and uh, you know, David says, oh, you know, congratulations, you know, chit chat. And then, and then uh, um, Lucy kept on addressing him as Mr. Gonski all the time and saying, oh, well, thank you, Mr. Gonski. You're very good to see you, Mr. Gonski. And um, when we got on the train, I said, why were you calling him Mr. Gonski? I was at school with him. And she said, oh, he seemed to be so much older than us. You know, it's, uh, that sort of sums it up, really. I mean, he, 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 he but look, he was, you know, David is um, charming. Uh, thoughtful it's hugely intelligent um but he always had that that sort of gravity that sense of seriousness about him.
0: malcolm you started arts law at sydney university in 1973 did you know then that you wanted to be a lawyer
1: um yes i did uh but i, I don't i didn't i i i, I didn't have a Yes, I, I did, I did. Yes, I thought I, you know, I thought I was and look, to be honest, there wasn't a lot of science in that assessment. You know, I was um but I thought I'd be, you know, I was good, I was interested in debating, I was I, I hadn't developed my quantitative skills at school. I'd been a bit um I hadn't, you know, pushed myself in mathematics, which I should have done. Um and so I saw my I just saw you know, being a barrister or lawyer being something that I'd be would certainly, but you know, I, I wasn't. Um, I didn't have a firm fixation about it. Uh, in your
0: in your years at university, your first jobs were as a journalist. You started to work uh, writing about politics for a magazine called Nation Review. Hmm. You started uh, reporting about New South Wales Parliament and I wondered is that when you first started to think about the possibility of a career in politics oh I think at I'd, some always, point.
1: I'd always thought about politics I mean I'd always you know been I'd always had an idea that you know I'd might run for parliament one day I mean you know the um, yeah I, would, I I don't know I think I'd always had politics in my mind of something I would do but it wasn't very it wasn't very uh, thought through I didn't have a you know, a, a particular plan as to how to go about it. But I was keenly interested in politics. I mean, my mother was keenly interested in politics. She was, she was from the Labor side, although not, you know, active in the Labor Party, at least not that I recall. Um, and so there was always a key... I always had a very keen interest in politics.
0: Malcolm, the next thing I wanted to ask you about was um, while you're still at law school or still at university, you're still working as a journalist and you get a job at the Bulletin, Yep. And you start writing a legal column, or a column about the law, and that led you to interview one of the Australia's then top advocates, who, of course, is still one of Australia's top advocates, Tom Hughes QC. That was a life changing event for you. Why was that?
1: Well, in those days, lawyers, particularly barristers, were very—you uh, know—were not allowed to or encouraged to talk to the press, and so it was quite—it uh, was quite a get. To get an interview with him, and we got a fantastic picture of him by the way, but on, on the cover, um, from striding down uh King Street, I think it was you know, robes flowing, looking magnificent. Tom's a very, very, very handsome man, uh, and anyway, we uh, so I, I got managed to get the interview, and uh, the, you know, naturally, the great man kept me waiting, he had busy things to do, and there was a young. A uh, woman, a girl, really, in in his office doing some noting up of his law reports, and uh, that was Lucy, his his daughter, who was a law student and was getting a bit of money during the holidays. And so I met Lucy and uh, fell in love with her. And that that was that was the big life changing event of my life.
0: Malcolm, there's a great story in your book. Uh, after that meeting with Lucy, you sent something to those chambers. Yes. Can you tell us about
1: that? yeah well, I sent i I, I after the interview with Tom, which went well, and though you know Tom's a, Tom is a very cool person, you know his nickname uh, has always been frosty, right and that's that's so he's very cool, he's reserved. Um, but it was the interview was fine, it was good uh, and uh, but my thoughts were frankly about his daughter, and I sent some flowers. Round to her to the chambers addressed to her because i didn't know where she or he lived for that matter, and um she wasn't there she'd you know gone off to a lecture or something and so Tom got the flowers and naturally assumed they were for him from you uh, from me and he came home to Lucy because Tom had been divorced and he was living in a, a little terrace house in um Darlinghurst. Um, and Luce was basically his, you know, housekeeper and cook, as you know, lodger. And uh, he came home and he said, "Oh, you know, Malcolm Turnbull's a charming young man. He so appreciated my giving him this interview. He sent me some flowers." And Luce said, "Oh, Dad, let me have a look at those." And of <laughs> course, the note—he hadn't read the note. It never occurred to him they could be for anyone but him. But you know, this is the thing about great advocates—they are—they are active. You know it's it showbiz and uh Tom um you know Tom was a an advocate who's never afraid to grasp the thunderbolt you know he uh he taught me so much about uh about the law and about advocacy and um you know that, that you know you you've you know the, the art of the advocate is to be persuasive right and uh so he taught me a lot of which a lot of lawyers and lawyers are very dark as you know i'm not very persuasive at all but tom was very good anyway the relationship with tom survived that rocky start
0: malcolm he- i want to ask you about the second date with lucy you mentioned you mentioned the first but i want to ask you about the second date so i think i've got this right correct me if i haven't uh she was 19 and you were 23 you both came <laughs> oh, right. from, yeah you both came from broken families both of your sets of parents had been divorced and you proposed to her on the second date yeah what qualities did you see in her at that early point that made you so sure she was the right one for you
1: oh well she's just so brilliant and and sensible and sane and clever and beautiful, and you know like everything I was completely captivated um and yeah, so I was just totally captivated by Lucy. I was absolutely certain she was the uh, you know she we should get married and and she was she was she was quite funny about it she said, let's wait until we grow up, um so she didn't say no she said let's wait until we grow up so i you know, I think we, we we waited until she grew up at least. So we got married when she was she was eight days short of twenty two. So she's often said she should she'd waited two weeks. So that she was say she was married twenty two, not twenty one.
0: That was when you were in England together when you were doing your BCL at Oxford. Then yep, you right. you came back to Australia, and you decided that you would go to the bar. Could you tell us a little bit about that decision? And I'd like you to talk a little bit more about the influence that your father-in-law, Tom Hughes, had on you, <clears> what it was like working with him.
1: Well, look, I, I, thought, that I thought I'd be, you know, I thought the, the bar would suit me. Um, you know, I, I, Tom wasn't the only barrister I knew, but, I, but he was obviously a massive influence and I thought it would suit me. Uh, and, and I think it did, frankly. I think I, I enjoyed the bar. Um, um, the so working with Tom was working with Tom was sort of it was pretty interesting actually because he he you know he is he look he's fantastic to work with, you know just so much knowledge and experience but very but he wants he he likes a junior barrister who will take him on I mean he's ferocious he, he and and uh, the, one of the problems I think he used to have was that he would get um, lawyers working with him, barristers and solicitors, who were just terrified of him because he, he was scary. Anyway, what that meant was a lot of people who worked with him didn't say boo. And, you know, when Tom would make a point, he wanted it to be tested. And so, you know, it's, always, it's actually quite it's a problem that strong personalities can have that the people around them become intimidated and become you know yes men or yes women and so uh, so Tom you know that was not obviously I'm not cut from that cloth, so we had many robust um arguments about cases we were doing and it was and, and, but he appreciated that you know he he it was a that the best um You know, that the the best uh, preparation you had with Tom was was putting your views before him, him tearing them to shreds, you then saying, No, you're wrong, you know, what about this, what about that? And and it and it, you know, you that's what made it a productive partnership. But you know, the compliant, oh yes, Mr. Hughes, no, Mr. Hughes, three bags full, Mr. Hughes, that was of no help to him at all, frankly. And he and he often used to lament that.
0: Malcolm, after two years at the bar, you made a change in career. What prompted that and where did you go? Well,
1: it was a, it was a combination. It was really a series of, of accidents, one terrible accident. Um, but let me get the timing right. So it's, we're at the end of 1982. Kerry Packer, who I'd worked for before I went to Oxford, um, uh, asked me out to lunch, I think. And we and Kerry said to me that he was, you know, he wanted a change to his legal arrangements and he wanted me to come and work and be his general counsel and basically do all his legal work. Now, you know, I wasn't even 28 mm-hmm. when he spoke to me, right? So I turned 28 in October 24, 1982. So I'm a very young man. Um, but Kerry was convinced that I was. I should do all his legal work and he had a, a man called John Kitter uh, who was the long standing sort of company secretary general counsel of Consolidated Press who was retiring John was a lawyer obviously but not but but not but he was more company secretary than lawyer you know what I mean he he was a... Uh, and said so Kerry wanted me to do his legal work and I thought this was very flattering but I I really didn't want to do it. I, I, you know, I had my heart set on getting to the top of the bar. So we left it with me uh, saying I'd think about it, but I think I left him with the impression that I probably wasn't going to say yes. And, you know, I clearly didn't want to offend him because he was a client. Anyway, not long after that, my father was killed on uh, the 11th of November, 1982. And this was just a shattering event in my life you know my father my best friend is dead you know the indestructible my indestructible bastion in my life you know the person that had stuck with me when my mother left was gone
0: and he was very young Malcolm wasn't he
1: 56 was yeah sure he was just, He'd literally just turned 56 and so dad um you know, had actually had some financial success uh, by that stage. Um, he, you know, he had some property. He had a lot of, I want to say a lot, maybe half a dozen shares, very small shares for the most part in hotels. Uh, so, so he had a, he wasn't a very wealthy man, but he, you know, he had it, uh, you know, a, a fortune, you know, of, of a modest scale, but it was quite complicated. You know, lots of partnerships and arrangements with people. And I thought I was, you know, wrecked by gutted by this. And I thought, well, why don't I have a quiet year off in the corporate sector working for Packer? Uh, and I can use that time to sort out dad's affairs and he had a farm. What was I going to do with that? And, you know, all of those things. So that's, so I got on to Kerry and I said, yeah, look, let's do it. And my thought was that I would stay with him for 12 months and then go back to the bar. So I, you know, leased my chambers out for a year, uh, went down there, recruited Bruce McWilliam to, uh, work with me. And my, um, plan was that, um, I'd get everything set up to have a proper in-house legal department that did, did his work. And, uh, I'd go back to the bar and hopefully Bruce would um, send me lots of work. Malcolm? And ben Costigan appeared and that changed everything.
0: Malcolm, you've said that working with Kerry Packer was quite terrifying and you said, I'm sure that was for a number of reasons, but one of them you said was because he had a lack of respect for the law and corporate governance. I'm wondering how did that sit with you as a barrister, with Tom well, Hughes as your father-in-law? Well,
1: yeah, Well, I mean, look, Kerry's not, Kerry was by no means unique in this regard. Uh, the uh, a lot of very wealthy people believe that the the norms that apply to other mortals do not apply to them. And Kerry, um, you know, found paperwork and laws and corporate rules frustrating and annoying. You know, and so you know, keeping them, keeping him on the straight and narrow. Uh, was often very tough. And, you know, there's a a wonderful um, moment where I remember having a row with him about, I can't remember what it was, it was something he wanted to do, which was clearly, uh, you know, unlawful. I don't mean criminal, I just mean, you know, not compliant with some corporate regulation or other. And, And I was complaining about this and I finally said to him in frustration, Kerry, this is a very bizarre way uh, to run a public company or corporation. And I remember he sat back in his chair uh, at this grin and he folded his hands over his tummy and he looked at me almost seraphically and said, ah, Malcolm, what you overlook is that I'm a very bizarre person. And that's you know, that's kind of so there it was. But yeah, but he but he, look it was a it, Kerry um as you know, um Packer got into you know got into this terrible trouble with the Costigan Royal Commission and it's so, a you know that's a whole there have been books written about that you know by themselves. So uh basically he he did not like he, he, did not, he, he would not have chosen, I think, to work with me. He, he needed me at that time, right? Um, I mean, he had hired me, but I think he probably found me to be more um, determined and independent than he'd anticipated. Having said that, he was in a desperate situation. You know, there's a story uh, that John Singleton once told, that, you know, just a bit of background. Kerry, he got into the troubles with the Costigan Royal Commission originally because of some property, some deals he'd done, including a tax scheme that a uh, Queensland property developer called Brian Ray had been involved in. Brian Ray is a very lovely, lovely man. It's he and his wife, Kathy sadly died in a plane crash as well. But, Anyway, um, the after the Costigan Commission had been, you know, defeated, as it were, and Kerry had got his clean bill of health from the government, the Attorney-General, um, he was talking with Singer, and Singleton apparently said to him, well, Kerry, you know, if it hadn't been for me, you never would have met Martinter. And Kerry thought about that for a second and said, yeah. But if... You hadn't introduced me to Brian Ray. I never would have needed to meet Malcolm Turnbull.
0: So he had a sense of humour. Malcolm, I want to ask you just briefly about the Spycatcher case because yep. there's something about that that I think is very, very interesting. You were at that point. You had set up your own firm with Bruce McWilliam.
1: I just literally just set it up. We set it up on the first you know, of January nineteen eighty six in the Spycatcher brief came in, you know, in in late January.
0: Can you just tell me what that case was about? And then I want to ask you about what it was like working with Lucy together, the two of you as a team, uh, working towards what ended up being a a historic victory.
1: Well, there was an old uh, MI5 agent called Peter Wright who uh, had left the security service, you know, the MI5, British equivalent of Asia, and he'd moved to Tasmania. Um, and he had written his memoirs and he wanted to publish them. And the British government got wind of this and they'd got an interlocutory injunction, you know, a temporary injunction to stop him publishing it uh, in Australia. His lawyers, they had a couple of big law firms, they had lots of QCs, all told them the case was hopeless. And that was it, you know, like they were doing. And um, Jeffrey Robertson, actually, who had given some advice to them in the UK, suggested to their, uh, British, their British solicitor, a man called David Hooper, who was out in Australia just travelling, I mean, watching the test match, I think was the main purpose of his trip, suggested to Hooper that maybe he should give me a call. And so Hooper came by to see me. He was a very, um, Proper old Etonian, you can uh, uh, very, you know, very much, uh, very much an English gentleman of the old school, and so Hooper came to see me and told me about the case, and I said, look, I, I think this is a winner. I said, I think we'll. I said, who knows what will happen at trial, but I said, I'm very confident we'll win in the High Court, because the fact was that there was really nothing in the Spycatcher book that was new or had been confidential. And it was an established principle of our law that the government cannot restrain the publication of a confidence unless it can uh, demonstrate there is some detriment to the government or the public interest in the confidence being published. Now, the Heinemann were completely and utterly pessimistic about it. And they um they said uh, that they would you know they didn't want it but they they would only prepare to do it if I was able to do it give them a very cheap and cheerful quote, and I think it was twenty thousand uh, dollars. you said that what i I said we'd do the case for, uh, and a bit extra if the trial went for more than four weeks or something like that anyway, we um <clears throat> and so we did, and we and we won it, and the legal team, you know there was some. Other lawyers, uh, apart from Hooper, of course, in, in the UK, there are some other lawyers in my office who help. But the legal team was basically me and Lucy. Uh,
0: and was that the first time that you two had worked so closely together?
1: Um, not, no, not really. We, I mean, Lucy wrote my law column for uh, for quite a while. Because when I when I left when I stopped being a journalist and I came back to Australia, and we kept the law column up, but in those days. You know, barristers had to be very careful about publicity. So it was called the officious bystander. Um, and uh, Lucy and I worked on that together. No, we, we, but, yes, it was certainly the main thing we'd done together. We had done some legal work before, but, um, you know, she'd only just... Lucy was really at, was only a, you know, a couple of years out of uh, law school at
0: that stage and Malcolm you ended up succeeding at, <clears throat> at the three different stages you succeeded at yeah. trial you succeeded in the court of appeal you then succeeded in the high court 7-0 and you make the point that uh, the victory in the high court depended upon a particular argument that Lucy had worked yeah. up yeah, well, how, how did that make you feel
1: oh it was great well it was very the, the, the Lucy's there was a lot of uh, funny stories about Lucy's role in the case um, so It was a very big, complicated case. There were questions of uh, confidence—you know, the law of confidence, which is an equitable doctrine. There was questions of contract. Um, Very—it was a massively complex case in both factually and legally. But there was one fundamental argument that Lucy had written up, which was simply this: that what the United Kingdom was trying to do was enforce a public law of the United Kingdom in Australia, which they can't. And that public law, of course, was their official act. And um, the trial judge gave that, I wouldn't say scant regard, but he, as he should, as a trial judge should be focused on the facts. Uh, the Court of Appeal was a little bit more interested, uh, but in the High Court, it won the day. And it was quite a funny story about the High Court because I don't know if you've ever been in there, but you know, it's a vast chamber. And the bar table is, oh, probably, you know, it's several metres, maybe three metres away from the solicitor's tables, which makes it very hard for the solicitors and the barristers to communicate. You know, the whole thing is grandiose, right? And um, Lucy was not admitted as a barrister in the federal courts at that time. And the... I'd spoken to the clerk of the court um, who had said to me that she couldn't sit at the bar table. And, I mean, I was appearing unrobed, of course, but, but I...
0: Which was very unusual in those days. Unusual, Still yeah. very unusual.
1: Still very unusual, yeah, because at this stage I'd become a solicitor. But I was admitted as a barrister and solicitor of the High Court as well. Anyway, so I I said to um, him, well, look, it's just not... You know, basically... She, she, she and I are the, are the team and we're not sitting next to each other. We can't do the case. And he said, well, she can't sit next to I said, okay. I said, all right, look, let's do this. You, I will file a summons tomorrow for a motion uh, that Lucy is allowed to sit at the bar table. And he said, you're kidding. And I said, no, I will. I'll file a summons for an order to get an order to do that. And we can deal with that as a preliminary matter. And he went, oh, don't do that. And he called back. sometime later, he said, "I've spoken to the chief justice, and he says Lucy can sit at the bar table, on the bar table, or under the bar table. In fact, he doesn't care where she sits."
0: So Don't, follow Don't follow the <laughs> summons.
1: And you'll find in the transcript of the um, of the case the first item is, I just say now, uh, you know, misuse or. Mrs. Turnbull, I can't sure what how I described it. Uh, you know, we'll seek, sit with me at the bar table. Of course, Mr. Turnbull said the Chief Justice. But it was but anyway, what happened was so we went through, you know, look, this was pretty unedifying stuff. I mean, the Cabinet Secretary of the United Kingdom admitted to having misled the court, and in fact, we now know he lied to the court from subsequent revelations. So pretty, pretty terrible stuff. And so um I was going through all that. And one point, when I was making my point about Lucy's point about the public foreign public law, the Chief Justice said, hey, now, Mr. Turnbull, if your submission on this is right, then the British government's case must fail. And we don't need to go through all this evidence, do we? I said, That's right. And he turned to my opponent, Theo Samos, uh, sadly no longer with us, and said to Theo, to Samos and Theo said, yes, that's, that's, that's correct. And then he looked to the judges on his left, he looked to the judges on his right, and they all, you can see them all thinking, that is the way we're going to resolve this case.
0: Thank heavens, We'll
1: give the right, we'll give the, 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 you know, we'll get the right outcome, but we won't have to express opinions on the integrity of the British government or who lied to whom in Whitehall in 1979 or any of that stuff. And... Uh, out it goes so that's so that's so that's when you read the judgment in the high court it's mostly about um, uh, you, know, uh, about, um uh, the, you know about the about
0: that point yeah. Malcolm that ended up being really the last case that you did as a lawyer or your last your last big act uh, as well auditor- not
1: quite i did one more i did a, uh, we did a uh, appeared for um um Uh, Brett Whiteley's uh, girlfriend uh, in the Janet Spencer in a case about a missing will, quite an exotic case, but uh, lost.
0: Okay. Um, Something you say in your book, which I thought was very interesting, was that you then had various offers. That had been such a success. There were opportunities Mm -hmm. to go to be a barrister in, in England. You decided you were going to try something different and you said something in the book to the effect of, maybe I felt that I had sufficiently proved myself to mm. Lucy's father, to Tom, mm. and so maybe for that reason I then felt that I could move out of the law and do something else. I thought that was a really interesting observation. Do you want to talk a little bit about that?
1: Well, I just, I, I you know, I, I felt, I, I honestly felt that I could spend another 30 years in the law, which I probably would have done if I hadn't put for 40 years. Who knows? I could still be there. Um I could have spent a lifetime in the law and everything would be an anti climax to spike So, you know, it was just, it was, uh, so I figured that, you know, I'd, I'd certainly proved myself as a lawyer, as an advocate, won um, the biggest, I mean, it's the highest profile Australian case, certainly, at least from an international point of view, you know, maybe ever. I don't know. I don't think there's ever been another Australian lawsuit other than maybe the Lindy Chamberlain case that's excited so much interest internationally.
0: Perhaps uh, until Cardinal Pell.
1: Yeah, that's true. Yes, that's a good, very good point. Yeah, but anyway, at the time, it was certainly the biggest um, case and I thought, you know, time to do something else. And I, and I was keen to make enough money to
0: be financially independent. That
1: was always a goal of mine.
0: So, Malcolm, you, you went on, you set up an investment bank. Yep. I'm not going to talk to you a lot about that. The next thing I want to ask you about is what you did in 1990 when, with Neville Rann, you set up the Australian Republican movement with Thomas Keneally as the first chair. Yep, what, prompted, right. what prompted you to do that? Well,
1: look, I, you know, I'd always been a Republican, uh, but what prompted me to get you know, active about it was Australia Day 1988 so the the bicentenary, and I was sitting up on top of the Intercontinental Hotel commenting on it. I'm not someone at heart retained me to do that, some network or other. And I was just staggered as I contemplated this extraordinary scene, you know, the, the celebration of a nation. And who was giving the big speech? wasn't our Prime Minister or our Premier, certainly wasn't the Governor-General, it was Prince Charles. Everyone was a warm-up act to the the heir to the throne. And Charles, to his credit, seemed a bit amused as to why he was there. But it it just, it it underlined to me, and I wrote about it at the time, it underlined to me just how anachronistic it was that this great, proud, unique, special country uh, had a head of state that was not Australian, and uh, you know that—that's essentially the, you know, I—I uh, I said then and I say today, you know, I love this country too much. I love its people too much to want to have a head of state that is not one of us.
0: Malcolm. What ended up happening after you devoted almost a decade of your life to that Mm -hmm. was that the referendum was lost, Australia voted against a republic. I'm wondering, was that defeat a surprise? And I wonder, one of the things you were criticised about when you were Prime Minister by some people was for not taking a firm enough stand in or not more actively promoting the republic during that time. And I wondered if that was because of the lessons you'd learned or what you'd taken from the fact that the Australian people had rejected the republic once well, in
1: ninety nine no, well not at all I mean we we look it's very hard to change the Australian constitution we know that um, in in the referendum in ninety nine you know we had the added problem of the advocates for direct election essentially saying vote no and to this politician's republic and in a couple of years we'll be able to vote on our republic well of course you know more than
0: 20 years have passed right can you just explain malcolm what the two alternatives were well well, well the,
1: the, when you move to amend the constitution you you the constitution is a is a law and so the amendment process involves parliament passing a bill to amend the constitution uh and the that. Um, then has to be approved by the public, you know, in a referendum with majority of voters in a majority of states. And so you have to have a specific model. You can't, you know, put up a pick a box, uh, at least not in the constitutional referendum. So anyway, uh, the model that we proposed was the one that had been endorsed by the Constitutional Convention, which is another long bit of backstory. And that was to have an Australian head of state called the president who was chosen by a two-thirds majority of a joint sitting of Parliament? The object being to get someone who had bipartisan support, and that that person would have the same powers as the Governor General, which is, you know, a ceremonial head of state with some um, sort of uh, you know umpire roles in the events of the constitutional crisis. Okay, and that was that 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 had got by that time. It had got support from. Uh, Labour. It had got support from the uh, from much of the many conservatives. I would say probably half of the liberals. Uh, even some Nationals were supporting it. So you know, it had a it had a, it had a fair bit of bipartisanship because the one thing that you certainly can't win a referendum on
0: is if it's partisan. But and what was uh, the old? I'm sorry. What was the well, alternative model? Well,
1: well, there there wasn't one alternative model in a nutshell, there were people who argued the president should be directly elected. And while that was superficially attractive uh, and it had a certain populist ring to it, the argument against that was that if you want your head of state to be a non-political ceremonial head of state who is utterly impartial, why would you choose them in what would inevitably be a contested partisan election? You know, and Neville Rand used to say uh, if somebody isn't a politician when they run for president in an election of that kind, they'll certainly be a
0: politician by the time they win it. Unless they're a politician, they won't have won it. Malcolm, do you think it was that internal division within the Republican movement, the inability to put up one single model, that resulted in the defeat of the referendum? Yeah, I
1: I think that was the major factor. I mean, basically the direct electionists... Allowed their conception of the perfect to be the enemy of the good. And, you know, I mean, we came close, you know, we got 40, I think it was 46.5% of the vote, which is obviously not 50% plus one, but it, it did better than many other constitutional changes, I might say, a lot better. But uh, that was the principal reason. Now, the question is, why did I not deal with it when I was in Parliament? Well, the reason is very simple, and I've been very, I've been consistent about the Republic for over 20 years. My view was that in 99 was that if we voted no, we would not be able to successfully re-agitate this issue until after the end of the Queen's reign. Uh, And I remain of that view. I'd love it to be wrong, but, you know, I I wasn't going to, um, you know, Agitate. Agitate for a change. The timing, I believe, doomed it to failure. So, so my view, uh, and again, I've had this view for 20 years, I expressed it regularly when I was PM, was that when the Queen's reign comes to an end, uh, you know, assuming there remains you know, support in the community for a republic, which I imagine there would be, uh, there should be a consultative plebiscite which pitches you know, parliamentary appointment model against a direct election model. You have a a good ding-dong argument about that for months. Uh, You have a vote. Uh, And then Parliament says, "Okay, the public have said they want direct election or they want parliamentary appointment, whichever one it is, then say, right, our job now is to draft the amendments, to embody that, and that's what you put to the people in the referendum.
0: Malcolm, would you involve yourself in that campaign? Of oh, course, I would.
1: Yeah, totally. I mean, I'm very committed to republic. I mean, I look. I just, it is. Um, you know, there are a lot of people who, who sort of, who you know, claim to be, I suppose, sympathetic to me or supporters of mine, who kept on urging me to um, do things that were futile and and self-destructive. You know, the the, the reality is. Uh, if I'd got up there and said, I want to make prioritise the Republic, people would have thought I'd lost my mind.
0: Malcolm, I'd like to ask you now, move to your move into politics. Mm. So by this stage, after the uh, Republic referendum in 1999, you're at Goldman Sachs by now, having moved from your own bank. And you said that you felt a pull towards politics and public service. Mm. You've mentioned in the book that Graham Richardson has said that you approached him, you approached him, to ask about joining the Labour Party. Is that true?
1: No, it's untrue. I'm not quite sure what Richardson is saying has said I mean he's probably said different things, but the facts are very straightforward. Uh, in 1993, or thereabouts, about the time that Richardson retired from the uh, Senate um, was retiring from the Senate, so that's that was the date. Uh, Keating rang me, and I had been chairman of the Republic Advisory Committee, right? So I got to know him a bit during that process. He was very interested in that, and he invited me over to Kirribilli House. I went over, and Paul laid out his plan that I should join the Labor Party and take over Graham's, you know, vacancy in the Senate, which would be filled as a casual vacancy by the nomination of the you know, state executive of the Labor Party. And I was i was very polite. I, I said it was very flattering. I thanked him for his interest and, you know, said how much I appreciated it, but I did say to him that I wouldn't be comfortable in the Labor Party and it wouldn't be comfortable
0: with me. I want to ask you about that, Malcolm. Many of your critics on the right and many of your supporters on the left mm. have long suggested that you were... Or would be more of a natural fit with the Labor Party than with the Liberal Party. Why did you say no to Labor and what made you choose Liberal? Well, I mean, i had been a
1: member of the Liberal Party. I joined the Liberal Party in 1973. You know, I'd run I'd run in the Liberal Party pre-selection in Wentworth in, um, uh, you know, 80, in 81. And I'd actually run and then pulled out of and then went back into a pre-selection for state seat in 83 or thereabouts. So, you know, I had a Quite a history in the Liberal Party, um, but yeah, well, look, it, that was my judgment. I mean, I I'm a smaller Liberal. Uh, my uh, they're a bit of a beleaguered species in the Liberal Party, in the capital L Liberal Party nowadays. But that was I felt that better fitted my views and my philosophy. Um, but anyway, getting on to Richardson, uh, so Paul, you know, who's very insistent. Uh, said I had to go, I must go and speak to Richardson. And really just to be polite to him, was the Prime Minister after all, I said, okay. So I caught up with Richardson, must have been the next day in the city. Uh, we had a cup of tea and I said to him, well, Paul's put this proposal to me. I don't think it's a good idea. I repeated to him what I'd said to Paul and Richardson said, I agree with you. And that was it and we finished our cup of tea. I mean, the the... At the time I rejoined the Liberal Party after I left Golden, there are a lot of people in Labour who wanted to cruel my pitch. They didn't want me in Parliament any more than Tony Abbott did, right? Uh, and so there were people saying, oh, he's really a Labour person. He wanted to join the Labour Party. I mean, joining the Labour Party is like buying, uh, you know, I mean, it's about as hard as sort of buying a bus, you know, a fare on the bus, buying an Opal card. right? It is, it is. The Labour Party is a proselytising, missionary, recruiting organisation like the Liberal Party. There's no ever never been a problem joining the Labour Party. If I wanted a mentor or a friend to help me join the Labour Party, I would have got Neville Rand,
0: who was an old friend and who it you'd closest, worked
1: with. Who was my, you know, one of my closest friends and my business partner for a decade. So, you know, it's a. It, it, but having said that. There'd be no shame, there's no shame in being in the Labor Party. I mean, I would rather people were members of the Labor Party than no parties, you know? I, I believe in active citizenship. And, I, and I, you know, I think it, one of the problems we face today is that not enough people are in political parties and political parties are not representative enough.
0: In 2004, at the age of 50, you enter politics. You're pre-selected for Wentworth after a yep. tussle with Peter King. How did you, and, and you're immediately thrown into the hurly-burly of an election campaign with an election coming up later that year. How did you enjoy the hurly-burly of political life?
1: Well, I enjoyed it a lot. You know, the, the, the kind of uh, rap on me when I ran for parliament was that I was, uh, you know, an out-of-touch, elitist, plutocrat who would not be able to handle grassroots politics um, and, you know, that's the kind of, you know, that's the man in the top hat sort of caricature that has been part of the, my, the critique of me. But actually, I enjoyed it very much. And, um, you know, I am you know, actually a very convivial person. I've always enjoyed people. I've always uh, not, not naturally suited to social distancing. Uh, and I've always, that's why I've always caught public transport, because I like the social aspect of I like seeing people, being with people. And so the the sort of grassroots part of being a politician, I really enjoyed, and I think I did pretty well. You know, when you think about it, you know, just looking at the numbers. I mean, when I, uh, well, I, you know, the two thousand and four election was was complex because King ran as an independent, but you know, the swing against the Liberal Party was a couple of percent on two party preferred terms. But then in two, but, but it was a good, you know, from Howard's point of view, you know, Howard got a swing to the government in two thousand and four. So, so, it was a, it wasn't a tough election in that sense. But in two thousand and seven, of course, the tide was running out. You know, we were we were toast, and my electorate had been redistributed, uh, and the the, on the basis of the new boundaries, my margin was fifty two and a half percent. So it was the most, actually, the most marginal liberal seat in New South Wales, and I managed to hold the seat and get a small swing to me. You know, whereas the statewide swing against the government was, over, was about six percent. So I should, I should have been just blown out in two thousand and seven, and Labor put a lot of resources and a you know very good candidate in to take me on there. So um, yeah, so but I enjoy. I, I like I like people, I'm, I like the I like the grassroots business of politics.
0: Malcolm, in September 2008, you become the leader of the opposition. And just over a year later, in December 2009, you lose that position in a very tight battle with Tony Abbott. He he wins 42-41. What I'd like to ask you about is something that you haven't talked about until this book, and that is the crippling depression that you suffered as a result of that. I guess I was wondering why you think that particular event hit you so hard. You'd had other defeats before. You'd had the Republic defeat. You'd mm. uh, once been beaten by Nelson uh, in a run for leadership. Mm. Why do you think this hit you so hard, this loss of the leadership in 2009?
1: I uh, Well, I was really shattered by the whole Godwin Dretch business, you know, where I, you know, was... Foolishly, um, you know, relied on Gretcher's, you know, representation that uh, Rudd's office had sent a particular email. I was basically taken in with a fake email by someone I trusted. And, you know, I might say everyone else on our side trusted as well. Godwin had, had his own mental health issues, which led him into that dark place and drew me into it. But I felt ashamed of that. Uh, and you
0: afterwards, you ended up actually going to apologise in person I did. to Kevin
1: Rudd. I did. apologised to Rudd several times. Yeah, no, I was, I, I mean, and I might say people around me in politics thought it was bizarre that I would apologise because, I, but I, I do, I really, throughout my political life, I have sought to be fair. Uh, I'm not afraid of making strong criticisms of people, as everyone knows but I I do try very hard to be accurate, you know, whether that's the old lawyer or the old journalist in me, I don't know, but I do try very hard to be accurate. And I just, you know, making a false allegation against somebody else is just not, that's not me. And uh, I was, I just felt very bad about that. Um, And uh, it was, yeah, that, that, you know, that was one of the things that, that was preceded the dreadful battle we had over climate change in the coalition that led to my defenestration and uh, that left me devastated and and you know as I've described in the book it was a very dark bleak
0: period Malcolm you said in the the recent interview in good weekend that politics is full of people battling depression but they obviously don't talk about it why well, do you think
1: do, some of them do.
0: some some have I'm sorry why do you think that is and what can be done about it?
1: Well, I think, you know, society is full of people who are battling depression. I mean, it is a, it's a very common um, health problem. Uh, what can be done about it? Well, I think we've got to you, you firstly uh, take better care of yourself. You've got to treat your mental health as important as your physical health and be as aware of it as you're physical health and so you know just as if you've got aches and pains physically you'll do something about it and maybe go and see the doctor about it if you are feeling miserable uh and you know you and depressed then you should you know take out you feel you're starting to get that way take action you know get a get up go outside and go for a walk get some sunshine you know be mindful, count your blessings, you know. You just, a, look, look, I'm not a psychologist, uh, but, it, and it is, and I got myself into the bottom of a very, very black, deep abyss in depression and clawing out of it was one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life, but I, I did. And I, what that taught me was the need just to be very, very aware of it and make sure that you don't, you, know, you don't get too far gone down that track. So if you're starting to feel grim and glum, uh, you know, uh, take it on.
0: Malcolm, just on that subject, it seems to me from what you said in the book that you took that um, loss, I suppose that that hit you a lot harder almost that than the loss of the prime ministership. That followed is that you don't seem to have suffered the same or certainly you don't talk no, about I, in the book is that because you had learned from that experience and you yes. had the the ability to lift yourself out and you knew how to preempt the depression as it were
1: yes definitely no no i i uh, I knew that my prime ministership would come to an end uh, I knew it would come to an end well obviously if I died in office it wasn't going to be managing my depression wasn't going to be an issue but Assuming that wasn't the case, I knew it would end either by my retirement, uh, you know, being rolled in the party room or losing the election, right? There's not many other possibilities. And so I was very... um, And I knew that it would be a shock whenever it happened or however it happened. And so I was very... I thought through how I was going to deal with it. And I decided that the day I ceased to be... Prime Minister would be the day, the last day I had in Parliament. And, you know, I'd make, actually, for some reason, or rather, someone had asked me about that. And, you know, Sally Cray always used to say, the problem with you, Malcolm, is that, you know, when people ask you questions, you actually answer them, which is uh, unusual for politicians. And I'd actually answered the question and said, well, when I cease to be PM, I'll get out, which, of course, News Corp turned into a, you know, a, some sort of scandal. But, um, no, that was quite deliberate. Because I knew that um, that if, if it was when it was over, it was over, I'd be out. There'd be no question of indecision, no question of should I stay or not. I wasn't going to be, um, you know, as I said in an off-the-record, literally off-the-cuff chat in New York, which was meant to be private, I wasn't going to be like Rudd and Abbott, a miserable ghost hanging around the Parliament plotting revenge on my successor. And that's why I got out. And I basically stayed out of politics. I mean, uh, the uh, you know my public interventions on public policy have been very limited and really issues-based rather than focused on people.
0: Malcolm, just while we're on that, something that occurred to me I wanted to ask you about was whether part of what helped you to recover from the shock uh, and the distress at that loss of your prime ministership was writing this book, whether... To use that hackneyed expression, whether that has been a cathartic experience for you, and whether the fact that you've been able to put in a whole lot of different ways in relation to a whole lot of different events, this is your opportunity to put your side of the story on the record. Do you think that knowing that you were going to do that and then actually writing it has assisted you in a way, in a way in that cathartic way people talk about?
1: It? I, I think it's I think it's a good way to. I mean, you know, it's one good way to sort of end a chapter in your life. You know, I wrote a book about the Spycatcher trial, which you know, Spycatcher had just absorbed me and, if not, obsessed me for you know, several years. Um, and I wrote several books about the Republic, uh, but I, you know, I just I, I think so. I suppose yes, Nicole. I think there is a cathartic element in it, but I think it's also important to. You know, set the record straight, or at least put your side of the story out there. I mean, history depends on it. Um, the uh, uh, yeah, I mean, I think that's that is uh, that's very very
0: important, Malcolm. I'd like to ask you, what is your proudest achievement as Prime Minister? You were Prime Minister from twenty fifteen to twenty eighteen. Mm. What you got a lot done in that period? You talk in your book about the the various things that you achieved. Is there one thing that you could nominate as your proudest achievement?
1: In terms of reforms, um, the most enduring one, I suppose, is uh, legalising same-sex marriage, you know, because that's a social reform of a kind that once made, will never be repealed. I mean, you know, the tax reforms I made, yeah, can be, you know, will no doubt get amended and... Changed, improved, undermined, whatever you want to look at it over time. Uh, but that was a that was a very that was that was a profound reform, and it was you know it was overdue, and it was very complicated. There's the I mean the books, the sort of rather labyrinthine Byzantine way we had to get it done is all described in the book. Because I was caught, as you know, I often was in politics between Skiller and Charybdis, the clashing rocks. You know, I had on the one hand the Labor Party that wanted me to fail, because that's sort of predictable, and they certainly didn't want us to legislate for marriage equality. Um, And on the other hand, I had that right-wing group and their supporters in the media wanting me to fail as well. So, you know, for for all my time as Prime Minister, I had both an insurgency inside the Liberal Party, backed by the supporters at News Corp and, you know, elsewhere in the right-wing media, uh, and the Labor Party wanted me to fail. So, and on same-sex marriage, it was the politics were quite complex. But, you know, the great thing is we got it done. And, I mean, the, 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 and this was entirely unplanned. Uh, but, you know, as it turned out, I think the vote was was fantastic. I know the debate around it, you know, was very hurtful to many people. But when you think about it, that postal ballot was phenomenal. You know eighty percent participation in a voluntary postal ballot. I mean most you know, I can't think of any countries that have voluntary voting in national elections that get an eighty percent participation. We only get a bit over ninety in a compulsory parliamentary election, you know. So that was phenomenal participation, and you know sixty was it sixty three percent voted? yes.
0: Malcolm, let me ask you then about unfinished business. Anything that you would like to have got done that you didn't get done?
1: Well, yeah. Well, obviously the national energy guarantee. I mean, you know, we we desperately need a coherent integration of um, a coherent integration of energy and climate policy. You know, that the fact that we don't have that. Um, means that we uh, not only have higher emissions, but we have higher electricity prices than we otherwise would. You know, it's been been that that, this, that from the time Abbott and the right-wing Liberal Party weaponised climate change, they have basically held us back on this issue. And it is, you know, it's a disgrace. I mean, the NEG had the broadest support of any energy policy in our history. But it was uh, derailed by you know a right-wing minority inside the party room, supported by their friends in the media, in the right-wing media, and it's a disgrace. And, and we're paying the price for it.
0: Malcolm, I'm going to end with this. Australia and the rest of the world right now are facing one of the greatest challenges. Uh, well Australia is one of the greatest challenges in the history of our country, COVID-19. Its well, I have two questions. In your book, you are very optimistic and you've always been very optimistic about Australia and <coughs> Australia's future. Do you still feel that optimism now?
1: Oh, yes, very much so. Yeah, I think we're better, you know, we are uh, better situated than, than uh, most, if not all countries, other countries. Uh, I'm very op- I'm optimistic about our future for all the reasons I was when I wrote the book. The, uh, as for COVID-19 it is a challenge. Uh, It's not without precedent, but it's certainly without precedent in any of our lifetimes. Um, And I have to say, I think the Australia and its governments and its people are handling it better than most. Um, So, you know, that's a credit to the, you know, the prime minister and the premiers and, you know, and Australia. So, but, but, you know, there's a there's a way to go. The economic impacts are going to be with us for a very long time.
0: Malcolm, I'm going to end the interview there. Thank you so very, very much for talking with me today. It's been an absolute pleasure. uh, And I wish you good luck with the book. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Books, Books, Books. If you liked what you heard in this episode, please go to my website, nicoleabbey.com.au to listen to all the episodes and find out more about the podcast. You can also find me Nicole Aberdy, on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter and look for my reviews in Good Weekend. You can subscribe to Books 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 at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and all the usual places. Since it's a new podcast, it would be lovely if you could go to any of these platforms and give Books 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 a rating or review. Thank you. I look forward to talking books with you again soon.